be turning to Acts chapter 5. We start a new chapter this morning. Last Sunday, I talked about how books and movies contain a main plot or a main story, but then there's like side stories that are connected to the main plot, but aren't the main plot, but they help us to understand character development and those sorts of things better. And so I think that the end of Acts 4 and the beginning of of Acts 5 are this kind of a thing. Uh, Because if you go back, or or rather if you skip forward to verse 12 of chapter 5, you see now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. That kind of picks up from chapter 4, verse 31, where it's talking about boldness, the people were speaking. And so there's this interlude, there's this side story, end of 4, beginning of 5, and Luke breaks away from that main story to give us this. Last week we talked about Barnabas and about what was going on in the church and how these early Christians were free from the love of stuff while at the same time being firm in their love for people. And we were challenged to consider, can you really love people firmly and well if you're still holding on to your stuff more than you ought to? Well, in the early church, they, they got this. At least at this moment in history, they got this. And so we saw incredible unity being displayed here. Uh, they were selling, Barnabas sold some land in order to, to lay the, the proceeds at the apostles' feet, and then it was given out to any as had need. And we saw that God is the one who creates unity, and he does it through the gospel, through the message of Jesus. And it kind of further prompted preaching. It didn't prompt them to like get together and start this commune where everyone else was excluded it actually caused them to go preach to those around them even more powerfully. They were living as if Jesus was still alive, preaching of his resurrection. And Luke gave the positive example of Barnabas, who gave a field. He he sold a field and he gave that money. His name means son of encouragement, son of exhortation, that sort of thing. Uh, That was the nickname that the apostles gave him. Well, Luke gives us a good example in Barnabas, and now at the beginning of chapter 5, he gives us an example not to follow. Okay, so read with me the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5, and then we'll pray and ask God to be with us as we study. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, 
tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Lord, you give us warnings in your word. And if we understand them as warnings, we'll be grateful for them. And so I pray that we're grateful for this text this morning. Not because people died, not because great fear came upon the church necessarily, uh, in the fear that we s- feel, um, but Lord, because in your loving kindness, you've included this in your word for us to hear in 2023 and to correct the things in our hearts and lives that need to be corrected. Because if, if those who are listening here, my brothers and sisters and friends are listening, are like me, I know my heart. I know that there's parts in it that, that I hold back, that I keep to myself because it's easier, it's safer. And texts like this call us to lay it bare before you, to be honest with ourselves and with you. And so I pray that that's what you do in our hearts today. It's a hard work, Lord. This is an uncomfortable situation, and yet you can use it to sanctify your church. And so that's what I hope and pray for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I say that the the story of Barnabas and the story of Ananias and Sapphira are connected because of the very first word in chapter 5. It's, it says, but. So it's comparing and contrasting an example that's already been, something that's already been said with what he's about to say. He's already talked about Barnabas. Now he's going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. We get the contrast of a man who's filled with the Spirit with a couple who lie to the Spirit. Now it shouldn't be any surprise which one we ought to imitate, but God certainly makes it crystal clear for us in chapter 5. It says in the first verse that this guy and his wife, they they sold a piece of property. Uh, The couple did this together. They agreed, they sold it together with each other's knowledge. Uh, so far, this is the same thing that Barnabas did, right? Barnabas sold a piece of land. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property. Same thing. Verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, as I said, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is where the stories and the examples deviate. They both sold property, but when they bring it to lay before the apostles and to give to God, they bring it differently. Barnabas didn't keep anything back that we understand, that we can tell. And he was given a nickname for it in a good way. Ananias and Sapphira conspired to lie and deceive. Now the text is clear. They did it together with each other's knowledge. Peter clarifies that when he's talking to, Anna, to Sapphira later on. 
So they couldn't blame each other. They couldn't say, well, I didn't know that my husband did this. I didn't know that she had wanted to do this. They did it together, conspiring together to do it. So I think what's going on here is, is unfortunate, but it's all too typical. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw the attention and maybe the praise that Barnabas received and they wanted it too. They wanted this kind of attention, but they didn't want to sacrifice as he did. They wanted the admiration. They had this really ungodly desire for it. And it was their downfall. How do we know this? Well, Peter's response to their gift in verses 3 and 4. Explain it. You can look there. He, he explains to them. He says, basically, guys, when you owned the property, wasn't it your own? Couldn't you have done with it what you wanted? And when you sold it, the proceeds of that property, couldn't you have given it however you wanted? Wasn't it yours to do whatever you wanted with? So the problem wasn't that they were going to give just a portion of it. The problem was that they were deceptive and that they said they were giving all when they only gave part. And this is the difference. Look at what Peter says to Ananias. He says, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. They wanted to look good and be talked well about like Barnabas, but they didn't want to have to make the same sacrifices. Now, Jesus used a word for this, talking about the Pharisees, and it's a word that we still use today. Can you guess what the word is? Hypocrite. Our favorite topic, right? This is what we all come to church to hear about hypocrisy. Now this honestly is one of the main reasons that people who don't go to church say they don't go to church for. You've heard it before. Oh, that place is just full of hypocrites. Hypocrisy. They're just a bunch of hypocrites over there. Why would I want to go and join with them? Well, Jesus uses the word you can see in your notes. You can turn to Matthew six if you want. He talks about giving, particularly, so in Acts chapter 4 and 5, there's talk about giving. So Jesus is talking about giving, and he mentions the word hypocrites. In Matthew 6, verse 2, he says, When you give to the needy, which is what Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira were doing, he says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but instead, and so here's Jesus's solution and instruction for giving. So it makes sense to pay attention to this, right? He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so it comes down, it boils down to this. Where do you want your reward? If you give, if you get a reward, where do you want it? Do you want it from people around you or do you want it from God? Because one may be immediate, but the other you may not see till glory. Where do you want it? Now the word hypocrite actually comes from the Greek theater. It, it has to do with putting on a mask and playing a part. 
in a show. Now that's not surprising, right? What might be surprising, maybe not, is that when the New Testament talks about hypocrites, it's never in a positive light. There's never a positive tone to putting on a mask and trying to be something that you're not. Brothers and sisters, this shows us that hypocrisy is actually fueled by pride. It's always motivated by self-love. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted praise. We want to impress others to make them think that we're something that we know in our hearts that we really aren't. And so we lie and we deceive. We put on a mask, right? Like in Greek theater, we put on a mask and we play a part. And the part that we play, we want everybody to praise. And it feeds our ego. And it's fueled by pride. But this isn't what Jesus wants for his followers. Because if we're truly following Jesus, we will be truth tellers. So remember that phrase this morning. Followers of Jesus will be truth tellers. Not deceivers. Not liars. Not hypocrites. Uh, back in the early 1700s, there was an American educator named Samuel Johnson. And of course, as an educator, he's not only educating children, and trust me, the school system was significantly different back then. He wasn't just instructing children, he was instructing their parents. And so he was uh, very adamant and encouraged his parents, the parents of his kids, to accustom their children to constantly telling the truth. And he goes so far as to say, this is a quote from him, he says, If a thing happened at one window, and when relating it, they say it happened at another window, don't let it pass, but correct them. Now, for us, that may seem like a silly thing to correct, right? Here's his reason why. He says it's, it's more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there's so much falsehood in the world. It could be very the same for us today. Right, And so he encouraged parents, so I think parents, we ought to draw the same encouragement from him. Correct our children. We don't have to come down on them at hard discipline, but correct them when even it's just small things, because small deviations from the truth in one phase of life may lead to large deviations from truth later on. God's children ought to be truth tellers, even when the truth hurts. Think about it. When we read through scripture, the truth that we find there runs contrary to our own spirits, right? Our own desires, our old nature, if you will. The the scripture comes and says, put away falsehood, pursue holiness, but our natures want what we want. We pursue selfishness. We pursue our own ego Ananias and Sapphira were wrapped up in earthly praise and became hypocrites as a result. There, uh, you guys have heard the names J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis. These guys were influenced by another author, George MacDonald, who was the author of a book called uh, Fantasties. This was a book that C.S. Lewis had really influenced him in his own writing and in, as far as his own conversion. Um, About hypocrisy, George MacDonald writes this. He says, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Here's some other sayings about hypocrisy. A hypocrite 
has God on his tongue and the world in his heart. A hypocrite is a person who isn't himself on Sunday. Hypocrites are like pictures on canvas. They look best from far away. A clean glove often hides a dirty hand. When reputation becomes more important than character, we've become hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite is still used a lot today, as I've already mentioned, but I'm not sure that it's always used correctly, honestly. For instance, like I mentioned before, a lot of people use this word to describe the church, and then they say, well, that's why I don't go, to fill in the blank. The truth is, at any point in time, at any given time, every one of us could be described this way, right? Whether you're in the church or not in the church, every one of us falls prey to pride and hypocrisy. So in reality, the person, the person pointing fingers at hypocrites in the church are really just like them. They just haven't admitted it about themselves. Warren Wiersbe said this, a hypocrite is not a person who fails to reach his desired spiritual goals because all of us fail in one way or another. A hypocrite is a person who doesn't really care about reaching those goals, but he makes people think that he has. This is an important phrase. His profession and his practice never meet. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception, trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. This is uncomfortable. I assume it's as uncomfortable for you to hear it as it is for me to say it because we all fall to this at times. This describes every one of us at some point or another. It's uncomfortable, but the reality is this oftentimes describes people who are criticizing the church more than those who are actually in the church because true born-again believers of Jesus, we know our weaknesses, right? Paul says that he boasts in his weaknesses. Why? So that the strength of Christ might shine through. In our small group, we're going through the book of Judges. This past week, we looked at the chapters that cover this, the, uh, the figure of Gideon. There's no reason why God should choose Gideon. He's timid. He's afraid. He needs constant reassurance. And yet God uses unexpected people for his glory. And we see it. And when he goes to battle, God pairs down his army to a meager 300 people. And then when he sends those 300 people into battle, they might not have even carried a sword. They take jars and lamps and trumpets. God oftentimes uses the weak and foolish things of this world to show who really has the power. And so Christians... Followers of Jesus, we know our weaknesses. We know our failures, even our hypocrisy at times. The difference is, Christians, we shouldn't try to hide these things, but you better believe that we should repent of them. The fact that we all do it doesn't make it okay. Okay? It just means that we have work to do in repenting and being corrected by the word of God. Paul admonishes Christians toward this very thing in Romans chapter 12. He says in the first couple of verses, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. Where's sober judgment come from? From the Lord. 
Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. So Christians know who they are apart from Christ, but they also ought to know who they are in Christ and then seek to walk according to that way. Walk according to the Spirit in that way. So it's it's this understanding of who we are without Christ, but then understanding who we are in Christ and letting that determine how we walk. In Acts 4, there was unity in the church for a moment. But deception, greed, hypocrisy, and pride quickly moved in. And it reminds us that the enemy has not given up. Outside persecution of the church. Remember, Peter and John were arrested and thrown in jail overnight. Did that work to accomplish the enemy's purpose of silencing? No. In fact, it kind of had the opposite effect, right? They go back and give a report to the church, and the church is fueled in their prayer to the sovereign God. They say, give us boldness to keep preaching. That didn't work. Outside persecution in the church didn't work to quench the spirit. So when that tactic failed, the enemy moves to pervert good things inside the church. And it's a tactic that he still uses today. Peter says that it was Satan who filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Guys, at times, and Peter says this, at times the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. And at other times, he comes like a slithering serpent whispering lies. And the church has to be ready for both kinds of attacks. Church, the Christians in the church need to cling tightly to the truth and be truth tellers. Again, notice that the problem wasn't how much Ananias and Sapphira gave. Peter says this in verse 4. He says, it, it was yours to do with what you wanted. I think this also refutes the idea of early communism in the church. Peter's saying there was no outside pressure on you to give a certain amount. It was yours to do with whatever you wanted. Brothers and sisters, your bank account that God has given you is yours to do with whatever you want. But God wants your heart so that your heart properly uses what's in your bank account. It was the same thing for Ananias and Sapphira here. Paul clears it up for us. Here. He says, no one required that you give the proceeds. You didn't have to give it all, like Barnabas did. But they said that they did. They only gave part of the proceeds. So their sin was that they conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit, to God, to the people, when in fact they kept some of it back for themselves. And I think some of Peter's theology comes out here in these verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Do you see the correlation that he's making? Holy Spirit is God. Now, they did lie to men. They lied to the people that were there. But God could see what the men present could not. And God helped Peter discern it on that day as well. And he called them out. But just like hypocrites, they were trying to make people think They were more spiritual than they really are. And we're tempted by the enemy to do the same thing. And so verses 5 through 10 are the uncomfortable warning that Scripture gives us about hypocrisy and lying. Now, it's interesting. Peter doesn't call down judgment on them. He doesn't ask God to strike them dead at all. But Ananias still breathes his last and he falls down dead. 
And then three hours later, after Ananias had been buried, his wife does the same thing. Now, lest we think that God just loves killing people, notice the patience that's displayed in verse 8. Now, Sapphira doesn't know what happened to Ananias. For whatever reason, she didn't know her husband had died. But here in verse 8, she's given the opportunity to come clean, isn't she? She's given the opportunity to tell the truth about what, how much they'd actually given. So Peter says, tell me again how much you gave. Unfortunately, Sapphira doesn't take the second chance and come clean. She keeps up the charade and she meets, meets the same fate as her husband. And yet this shows us, as the Psalms tell us, that God really is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It was offered to Sapphira. Is this really how much you had? But she met the same fate. But look at the result of these things. Look at verse 11. It says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now we oftentimes read the word fear and we understand it rightly to mean reverence, holy awe, holy, you know, fear. Um, and that certainly was what's going on here. But I think it's also obvious that this fear is talking about a sense of dread and terror that came upon the people as a result of what happened. I mean, they breathed their last standing in front of an apostle of God. Now, he didn't reach out and touch them. He didn't slay them in the spirit. God slayed them. They were dead. God is a consuming fire. And there are just, there are times when he just doesn't mess around. We see this in church history or in Israelite history. At least you can think of some of these. I think I've got these in your notes. You can think of Achan. In the Old Testament, they were called to conquer a land and a people, and he stole treasure and hid it underneath of his tent, and it caused problems for all of Israel. Nadab and Abihu were struck dead for offering strange fire before the Lord in the Old Testament. Korah and his company were literally swallowed up by the earth for opposing Moses. Uzzah irreverently touched the Ark of the Covenant and we look at these situations and God just, he just isn't messing around. There are just some situations where he says, no, you're not going to do that. Now, I don't know that we would go so far as to say God was making an example out of all of those people. But if you were to be alive, if you were alive in those moments and you saw those things happen, those people's lives end in that way, what conclusion would you come to about God? There are times when God just doesn't mess around. God is, is holy. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God is, God could end my moment or end my life in a moment with a whisper, with a thought. We would have to inevitably conclude that God is all powerful. That's omnipotent is the word that describes all powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all knowing. He is all powerful and he is holy. There was sin in the camp and judgment rightly fell. So God is all powerful and we need to see that. And the people here really got a front row seat to it. But again, 
we should also take note of his forbearance here, his patience here. The holy and omnipotent God gives the opportunity for people to be reconciled, to repent, to come clean. Guys, the same offer is extended to you and me now because we're living in the age of God's patience. As often as you draw breath, God offers opportunities to confess of our hypocrisy and our deception and to repent and turn to him. You see, if we're real honest with ourselves and not hypocrites who put on a mask and act like someone we're not, we're not far from the likes of Achan and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira, are we? Our hearts are not that different do we take what happened to them seriously or do we just read through this as, a, as, as a, an old story and think, oh man, stinks to be them. Peter's right there, right? He's watching this all play out. He's got people falling dead at his feet. Well, he goes on to write a couple of epistles to the church. Turn to First Peter with me. We're going to read one of these. And I don't know that he has Acts chapter 5 in mind when he writes First Peter Chapter 4, but you can certainly see some similarities. First Peter chapter 4, look at verse 17 and 18. First Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I think there's, there's evidence that Ananias and Sapphira were believers who really succumbed to the temptation of pride and greed, and they really had deadly consequences in their life. So the call on Christians to pursue purity and honesty is still real and relevant today. I don't know that God's going to start knocking us over dead when we lie, but he wouldn't be wrong to. The call on our lives as God's children, as born-again believers, is to pursue real and relevant honesty and purity, not fake putting on a mask Paul goes on to say that stories like this are included in Scripture for as an example for us. So in some way, God does use these folks as examples for us. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's reminding the, church, the, the Corinthian church of Israel's idolatry, of their immorality, of their grumbling, of their faithlessness. And he says, now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, and this is an important sentence for us this morning as we wind down. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know what Paul's saying in that? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. He's saying, be careful. He's saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. If you think you stand, take heed, lest you actually fall. And I think this is why 
Jesus is talking about judging others. And he says, look, take the plank out of your own eye so that you can remove the, the splinter from your brother's and sister's eye because we need to be real and genuine people. Because it's possible that if in the process of you trying to correct your brother or sister, you might also be tempted to do the same thing. Like when we read the book of Judges. We've talked about this several weeks now in our small group. We've said we shouldn't sit like on this elevated chair reading about these judges who miserably fail at times and think, oh man, I'm glad I'm not like them. Because in a lot of ways we're just like them. The point of these stories and judges and in Old Testament and all throughout, the point of them is so that we would be real about our sin, confess it, repent of it, and turn to the Savior lest we fall. God calls his children not to hypocrisy, but to real, genuine faith in community. Remember, when these folks that I listed in the Old Testament, when they fell into sin, it affected the whole people of God. When Ananias and Sapphira lied and dropped dead, it affected the whole group of the people of God. Great fear came upon them. It affected the whole community of believers. Brothers and sisters, we can't sin in our closet and believe that it's not going to affect everyone else out in the open. Now, maybe for a short time, we can cover it up. Maybe for a while, it doesn't affect our wives and our children and our church family. But at some point, it will. And the reality is that God is gracious when he brings it to light. Now, it doesn't feel that way. If there's things that you need to repent of in your heart, that the Spirit is bringing to light, even maybe if we've been talking this morning, it's not a pleasant thing for you to think about coming clean. And yet God is gracious to give us the opportunity to to give us a story like this, that great fear might come upon our heart so that we might not follow this same path. God's people are to live with integrity. A couple of ways to apply this as we close this morning. Because we want to apply what we've learned, right? It's good to see these things, but if we don't go out and apply it, then we're hypocrites. <laughs> and that's the kind of the, the anti-point of what we're talking about today. So how do we apply this? How, how do we make sure that our lives are different going out these doors today? Well, here's a few things to think about. As we want to learn from God's word, may our pursuit of truth and purity lead us to confession and to repentance. Guys, those are gifts of God, not to be taken lightly, not to push away. May our pursuit of truth and purity lead us to confession and to repentance. May our submission to the Spirit cause us to recognize and grieve our hypocrisy. Sometimes it has to be pointed out. Now, God builds this into marriages with our spouses, right? That's, again, not a pleasant process. And yet our spouses are some of those ones who oftentimes are the first to say, I'm not sure that this is going well. If you have a spouse that in love brings this to you, don't push them away. Don't harden your heart. But instead, recognize the spirit 
revealing this to you and grieve your hypocrisy and be led to repentance. Thirdly, may our hearts be filled with reverence for the Lord. And to, that goes along with that love for our brothers and sisters in the community of the faith. Because remember, sin always affects the camp. It affects the whole church. And as I was thinking about these things today, the psalm that we sang, Create in me a clean heart, comes to mind. Psalm 139 comes to mind. It's on your screen this morning. I want to read this as part of a prayer and then pray. Verses 23 and 24, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me to the way, in the way of everlasting. Let's pray. God, it's, it's not lost on me how uncomfortable this is because there's a degree of that that I'm uncomfortable with because, because I know who I am. And I think the majority of my brothers and sisters listening today, we know who we are apart from Christ. We're prone, given the right set of circumstances, to do the very same thing that Ananias and Sapphira did. And yet in your, your patience and your loving kindness, you've not knocked us dead yet. We're here breathing. We're hearing this and listening. And so you've given us time to repent and to turn back to the Savior lest we fall. And so I pray that you would tear down the stronghold of pride in our hearts, in my heart. Tear it down. And in that process, Lord, there's pain there's difficulty, there's admitting things that we would rather keep in the dark. And yet, in your conversation with Nicodemus, you said that we shouldn't do that. The world wants to do that. We want to hide things away. And yet, truth needs to come out and bear out in our lives. And so I pray that you would make us truth tellers. First, about our own sin. God, help us not to run around pointing fingers at other people's hypocrisy until we've dealt with our own, until you've dealt with it. And so, Lord, I imagine you're doing a work in hearts this morning. And I don't know what that might mean. That might mean going to someone. That might mean falling on our knees in repentance. It might mean recommitting over again to be people of the word whose actions and belief match. They meet somewhere there. So Lord, make us truth tellers. That the world might see our humility. Not that that is what we boast in. Lord, but that so people might see and be encouraged to turn. Because Jesus really does change a heart. He really does change a life. And so we, as hard as it is to read this story, we thank you for this example. That it might serve as a warning to us. So do the work that you need to do in our hearts today. Whether it's someone who's never heard the gospel or responded to the gospel, saying for the first time, this is true of me and I can't take it anymore, I need to be saved. Or whether it's someone who's walked away and hardened their heart from you for years, now all of a sudden, Lord, you've revealed to them their, the, the truth. And Lord, I pray that they would turn back and recommit to be people of your word, to be people of their word, and to live as they say they believe, Lord. 
We count on you to do this because our own strength, we won't. So spirit, have your way in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.